Well, good morning. It's uh, really good to see you. I send uh, greetings from All Saints Presbyterian, where I have the privilege of serving as one of the pastors there. I've uh, been at All Saints for just over a year now, and um, it's good to be with Christ the King again. I was here back in August and uh, preached, if you remember, from the New Testament letter of Jude. And we looked at the end of that short letter with that beautiful doxology where Jude stops and he praises God. He says, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. And the passage, the text we're going to look at today ends with a doxology as well. It says, to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And I just want us to pause as a people yet again and look at what prompts the Apostle Paul here to stop writing, as it were, and to start praising God. So if you have a Bible this morning, I invite you to go ahead and turn with me to 1 Timothy Chapter 1, we're going to be starting in verse 12. This letter was, was written by the Apostle Paul to the Ephesian church pastor, Timothy, who, as you may know, was a close friend and a ministry partner and a protege of Paul's. Traveled with him quite a bit on his missionary journeys as Paul was traveling, planting, gospel, preaching, embodying churches. Let me read, let me read this passage and then... We'll pray together. This is 1 Timothy chapter 1, starting in verse 12. Paul writes, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him. For eternal life. To the king of the ages. Immortal. Invisible. The only God. Be honor and glory. Forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father we pray now that you would. Give us eyes to see. And ears to hear. And hearts to embrace. What is really here in your word to us this morning. That it would lead us out of the overflow of our hearts to praise you not only with our lips, but that it would truly produce fruit in our lives for your glory and the good of others. For we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now for a lot of us, I suspect, I know that's not true of everyone. If this isn't your story, just stay with me for a second. But for many of us in the room, I'm guessing we've been in the church for much of our lives. Which means that we've heard the Bible preached, we've heard the gospel heralded hundreds of times, 
And so we are very familiar with statements like the one that comes from Paul in this passage when he says in verse 15 there that Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And here's the danger that I want to help us to see and avoid. I think it's the reason I want to preach this morning is for me to see it and to avoid it as well. But what tends to happen with familiar truths like this is that because we have heard them so often, it's easy for them to lose their punch, right? Just easy for them to lose their wonder. So much so that we hear them and they just fall on deaf ears and we become just numb, indifferent to them. I know I'm guilty of it and I'm guessing if you're being honest with yourself, the same is true for you. We can be quick to say, I know that preacher, right? I've, I've heard this before. Tell me something I don't know. Maybe something more relevant, more practical, more insightful and penetrating. That's why I came to church this morning for the pastor to be clever. But what, what ends up happening is that over time, we begin to lose the wonder and the beauty of what God and Christ has actually done for us. And slowly but surely, if we are not careful, it'll stop having any practical effect on our lives and we will just slowly drift. We just drift. We'll just wake up every morning oblivious to the miracle that it is that any of us are saved Or if I can be so blunt as to put it this way, it'll just become boring and mundane and we will go through the motions week in and week out. Let me give a a real world example uh, that each of us experience every day just to illustrate this point. It happened this morning. Think about the sunrise, okay? We've seen it happen hundreds of times before and for many of us, we no longer stop to consider the wonder of what's actually taking place. The wonder that it is that we are on a planet that is suspended in a universe that nobody has been able to find the end of. That we are spinning on an axis held in orbit by a star that is something like 109 times larger in diameter than our tiny little planet. So massive that 1.3 million Earths could fit inside of it. Think about it. 1.3 million earths could fit inside the sun. And day after day, without fail, at just the right time, we spin into view of the sun's light and heat as it rises on the eastern horizon. It's an amazing thing, a sunrise. And yet, because we see it every day, we rarely give more than a moment's thought to it, right? And so when we hear words like Jesus came into the world to save sinners, which is way more amazing than the sunrise, we often don't slow down long enough to consider what it actually means. How God's coming into the world as one of us changes everything. So much so that if you are a Christian this morning, brothers and sisters, you are a miracle. Several years ago, I read a a book about John Newton. That's a a name some of you may be familiar with. Uh, Newton lived in England back in the 1700s. He's most famous for his hymn, which we sang this morning, which I'm very glad for. Amazing Grace, which is the most familiar hymn in the English-speaking world. Newton was a pastor 
for over 40 years and is probably the greatest pastoral letter writer of all time. You know, the old-fashioned handwritten notes that you used to get. But many of, many of Newton's letters still exist today. But John Newton is also remembered for his role in the abolition of the British slave trade. He was the spiritual mentor to the much younger William Wilberforce, who was a member of parliament and who vehemently opposed the institution of slavery. By all accounts, John Newton led a remarkable life. But before all of that, before Amazing Grace and all kinds of other hymns, before becoming a pastor, before writing thousands of Christ-exalting letters, before influencing Wilberforce, it is not an overstatement to say that John Newton was one of the worst of sinners. The man was so far from God that he and anyone who knew him would say he was hopeless. Just utterly hopeless. Do you have anyone in your life right now that you think there is no possible way that person will ever become a Christian? Maybe that person was you. That was certainly John Newton. He was the least likely convert to Christianity. If you can think up a sin, it's likely he committed it or at least gave serious thought to committing it. For a period of time, in fact, he was the captain of a slave ship where he committed atrocious injustices. But as God would have it, the former slave trader would play a pivotal and crucial role in the liberation of the slaves. Isn't it amazing how God works? When Newton was just 22 years old, he nearly drowned aboard a merchant ship in the middle of a storm at sea. And it was that near-death experience that proved to be a watershed moment for him. This wasn't his conversion, but the effect that it had on his life is that it awakened him out of his drunken stupor to his desperate need for Christ because he knew that if he were to perish in that sea, he would spend an eternity in hell separated from Christ. As I was reading the book, one thing I was struck by was Newton's last recorded words. A pastor who was much younger than he was, whom Newton had helped mentor in the faith, went to visit him on his deathbed and he had brought his journal along hoping for some words of wisdom from his pastor By this point, Newton was very well into his 80s. He was confined to a room. He was bedridden. He had lost much of his memory. His health was quickly deteriorating. But this is what the young pastor penned in his journal that day from the lips of the dying Newton. He said, My memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things, that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. My memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things. I'm a great sinner and that Christ is a great savior. Here was a man who had walked with God for 50 years, but one who never forgot or got over the grace of God that saved a wretch like him. Amazing grace was a personal testimony. He refused to allow the truth of the gospel to become mundane or ordinary so that it ceased having a transformative effect in his heart and life. 
And that by the end of his life, though he had forgotten almost everything else, he never forgot or failed to exalt in the most glorious, important truth in all the world that he was a great sinner and that Jesus Christ is a great savior. And if you remember nothing else from today, I pray that you would remember that because here's what I want to see. I want us to see. And here's the connection to our passage Newton didn't come up on that line, come up with that line on his own, did he? It comes from Paul. Here was another old pastor who was at the end of his life who said something similar to a young pastor whom he had mentored in the faith. The apostle Paul says to the young Ephesian church pastor Timothy in verse 15, Timothy, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Paul's writing these words towards the end of his life. Um, It wouldn't be long before he would be killed by the emperor Nero. And no doubt, Paul's looking back over the course of his life and ministry. And what's one of the things he wants Timothy to know? What's one of the things he wants us to know this morning? that he is the greatest of sinners. He calls himself the foremost, present tense, the foremost of sinners. And Christ is the greatest of saviors. Paul never stopped being amazed at the grace of God that overflowed for him. He never got over the unbelievable truth that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Neither did John Newton And I pray neither will we. There's so much here that we could unpack, but all I want to do is ask three questions of this text. Three questions. First, what did it cost Jesus to come into the world? What did it cost Jesus to come into the world? Second, why did he come? And then third, how do you and I keep this good news from becoming ordinary and mundane and therefore life-changing? Three questions. We'll do, we'll do these quickly. First, what did it cost Jesus to come into the world? Obviously, there's so much that we could say because the grace of God that was poured out for the salvation of sinners didn't come cheap. But consider this with me. Paul says there in verse 15 that it was Jesus who came into the world. Jesus who came into the world. Now, for those of us who've been in the church, it's easy to just fly past something like that because we know his name, right? We say his name all the time. His name is Jesus. But if we slow down long enough, we remember that there is so much weight attached to his name. The name Jesus literally means Yahweh saves. Yahweh saves. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the Lord saves which means, as we learn from the rest of the New Testament, that God himself, not someone else, but God himself became a man. The infinite, eternal God, the one who created all things, who sustains all things, the second person of the Trinity, who was loved by by the Father, adorned with unspeakable beauty and glory, worshipped by angels, this God willingly laid aside his rights as God, entered into history by taking on human flesh. He befriended sinners. 
He lived a life of perfect obedience to his father. He was accused of being a devil, was betrayed by a close friend. He was mocked. He was scorned. He was condemned as a criminal. He was sentenced to death, beaten, spit upon, nailed to a sinner's cross, naked, dehydrated, breathless, agonizing, absorbing the full wrath of God for the sins of his people. He bled and he died. And then the everlasting God who dwells in unapproachable light was placed in a borrowed grave and engulfed in darkness. But the story doesn't stop there, does it? Because three days later, he was raised to life, triumphing over sin and death and the devil and securing his salvation for his people. And he ascended into heaven and he now sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, and has been given the name that is above every other name. His name is Jesus. The saying is trustworthy, brothers and sisters, and is deserving of full acceptance, Paul says. Christ Jesus came into the world and the cost was greater than you and I will ever be able to comprehend. This is why John Newton and this is why the Apostle Paul in this passage and those of us who love him can say that he is a great Savior. Friends, may we never lose the wonder of the incarnation of the Son of God dying in the place of sinners like us. Second, why did Jesus come? We've already touched on this. Paul gives the answer here though, doesn't he? He says the reason he came and died is to save sinners like him. And lest us sitting here feel like that word be stripped of any real significance for us. Paul says here, if you want to know just how great a savior Jesus is and how utterly desperate and undeserving you are, let my life serve as an example for you. That if, if God in Christ can reach down and save me, he can save anyone, including you sitting here this morning. Look again at what he says there in verse 13. He says, formerly, I was a blasphemer, persecutor, insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saint is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason. Now listen, I receive mercy for this reason. That in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. What's happening here? What's Paul saying? Paul is holding himself up as the poster child for the least likely convert to Christianity, isn't he? And if you've been in church, like you know his story. It's bad. Like it's really bad. In Acts 7, if you go back to Acts 7, Paul's there at the stoning of Stephen, the first Christian martyr. And it says there that he approved of his execution. Like Paul's there. He's casting in his vote that that man deserves to die. Then Acts 8, there arose a great persecution against the church. And leading the charge was none other than Paul himself. 
It says he was ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women and putting them in prison. This man wanted nothing more than to destroy the church. So this is not someone who is looking for Jesus. This is not someone exploring the claims of Christianity. But this is a man hating Jesus and hating everyone who follows him. He was the radical that everyone feared. That's why he says in our passage, it's a blasphemer, persecutor, insolent opponent. But we all know the story, don't we? Paul on the Damascus Road, on his way to persecute Christians in Syria. But the risen Jesus out of nowhere, knocks the man off his horse, saves him, sets him apart for gospel service. And Paul, for the rest of his life, never got over it. Never got over it. Paul, the great persecutor of the church, became Paul, the great apostle to the church. All for the purpose, as he says here, of magnifying the greatness of the Savior and saving sinners. It's amazing how God works, right? John Newton, a slave ship captain, plays a role in the liberation of the slaves. Paul trying to squash the church, persecute the church, becomes the great apostle. So back to the question, why did Jesus come? Well, he came into the world to rescue rebels and blasphemers. Those who hate Christ, who hate his church. He came to save slave ship captains like Newton and liars, cheaters, complainers, adulterers, prostitutes, racists. He came to save the greedy and the self-righteous, the self-absorbed and self-important In other words, he came to save people like you and me. The grace of God overflowed for undeserving wretches like us. Tim Keller, the long-time pastor in New York City, was fond of saying, the gospel says that you are more sinful and flawed than you ever dared believe, but more accepted and loved than you ever dared hope. You and I may not have the same testimony as a Paul or a John Newton, but we would make a really big mistake to think that our situation was any less desperate or dire than theirs. Because like them, we too should be able to say, I am a great sinner and Christ Jesus is a great savior. Because the reality is we are more sinful than we ever dared believe. For brothers and sisters, we are more loved than we ever dared hope. That it is sheer grace that any of us are saved. The saying is trustworthy and it's deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And Paul says, if you need an an extreme example of that, if you need hope for your family or your friends who are so far from Christ this morning, Paul says, just look at my life. Because if he could save someone like me, he can save anyone. So let me ask the question to you. Is that you this morning? Are you far from God? Are you running in the opposite direction? Have you done things that you think nobody could ever love you? Or forgive you? 
or accept you. The good news, the gospel that is on offer to you this morning and for all of us is that you have not strayed so far that his arm is too short to save. If you are a great sinner, which is really all of us, he is an even greater savior. So come to Christ today. Which leads to the last thing I want to say, just a point of application. How do we get this gospel truth to sink deep into our hearts so that it produces praise and fruit in our lives? This is where we started, right? We hear or we see something so often, something miraculous, amazing, incredible, like a sunrise. We see it so often that we begin to lose the wonder of it. And when we lose our wonder, it it, it no longer has the explosive power to change us. You know, the issue for every one of us is that we suffer from gospel amnesia, don't we? Just prone to forgetfulness. We're prone, as the old hymn says, to leave the God we love. You know, I've heard a pastor say before that a Christian is someone who needs saving every single day. And I think that's just more or less true. That yes, our salvation in Christ is secure. That he who began a good work in you will see it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. But we are quick to forget. We are quick to lose the wonder of the grace of God that has overflowed for us. We are quick to forget that Jesus came into the world to save sinners. So what do we do about it? For starters, we do what we just did. We slow down and we take time to remember. We take time to consider what it actually cost Jesus, the Son of God, to come into the world. We take time to remember how sinful we really are and how undeserving we are of his grace. And we gather for worship every Sunday to sing and to hear God's word proclaimed, to pray, to fellowship with other believers. We wake up in the morning and we open our Bibles and we ask God to warm our cold hearts and to open our blind eyes and our deaf ears, not just intellectually, but to love and adore him with all of our hearts for who he is, for what he's done. And maybe like John Newton and like the apostle Paul, when we come to the end of life, we can say with all of our hearts that yes, I am a great sinner And yet Christ is a greater savior and be able to praise God with Paul as he does at the end of our passage. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for reminding us this morning through your word that it is a trustworthy saying and deserving of full acceptance by us that your son came into the world to save sinners. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the Lord Jesus. I pray, Father, that you would help us not forget, help us not to lose the wonder of it, but fill us with worship, fill us with praise, Pray it even now in Christ's name. Amen.